You're listening to a podcast from the Trinity Longroom Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. Welcome back to those of you who were with us earlier on at the Arts Humanities Research Festival. Uh, and this session is, and it's my fault, it's not facetiously titled Who Needs Footnotes? But in fact, we all need footnotes. And there's that, that great belief that scholarly books come to us fully formed straight out of the womb. But of course, there is always a midwife of, of sorts who brings them to us. Uh, some better than others, but I'm personally somebody who's a great believer in footnotes, in scholarly editions, uh, introductions, conclusions, apparatus of all kinds. Uh, so it's something that goes unsung and unheralded very often in arts and humanities research. We don't celebrate it enough. The drudgery, and I'm using Samuel Johnson's word deliberately, the drudgery of, uh, of working on the uh, scholarly annotations and the footnotes. So we thought for the festival we'd bring together two absolute experts, game changers in this field. Uh, and I'm going to introduce them to you very briefly because as I was saying earlier, this isn't a conference, you don't have to listen to long biographies. Uh, but I will tell you, uh, and I'll do them in alphabetical order, that uh, my colleague from the School of English, Professor Daryl Jones, who will, I've forgotten what your full title is now, Daryl, Master of the Universe and something <laughs> like that. Uh, but Daryl is a world-leading expert on horror literature. Uh, you can read uh, his work, Sleeping with the Lights On, another great title, uh, published some time ago. But he's also had a long-term interest in detective fiction, and he specialises in the work of Sherlock Holmes. And for his sins, Daryl was tasked with the new uh, a series of Sherlock Holmes stories brought out by OUP recently and with recruiting people to annotate them and to edit them. Uh, and indeed, he took on one of the volumes himself, The Hand of the Baskervilles. So he's had to keep a close eye on what it means to take a much beloved and classic figure like Sherlock Holmes and bring him into contemporary age with some kind of apparatus to make sense of things and present him in a way which is acceptable to uh, both purists and to novices in this area. So he's going to talk to us a little bit about what it's been like to work on new editions of the Sherlock Holmes stories. And my other wonderful colleague from the School of English, known to all of you, I think, is Sam Sloat. And Sam is the he is the greatest Joycean scholar we have. He's also the greatest Beckett scholar we have. Imagine my surprise when he wasn't the person selected and chosen to write the screenplay for the forthcoming film starring Gabriel Byrne about where Beckett and Joyce get together in Paris, and, uh, but more of that and on. Um, but in terms of Joyce and in terms of that most impenetrable of texts, Ulysses, Sam is the one we have to thank for now not just one set of scholarly annotations, but now bigger, bolder, and better, a new set of scholarly annotations to possibly one of the most, if not the most, difficult book ever to provide information on. But his annotations are a thing of beauty and delight because they go well beyond pure information into the realm of anecdote, of speculation, of colour and of charm. And they were rightly celebrated recently by no less than Colin Tobin in the London Review of Books for making Joyce familiar to us in, uh, in this new and exciting way and making him not quite accessible, but uh, in a way, I suppose, you've given us a whole new book on a para-Ulysses uh, for modern times. So 
Sam's going to talk about what it's been like and the pains of annotating uh, Ulysses. And we can maybe have discussion afterwards because other people in the room may have had similar experiences in the work that they've done. So I'm going to hand over to the two of you and off you go. Hello, everybody. Uh, I'm Daryl Jones. Uh, and can you all hear me all right? Uh, so, so what we thought we'd do, um, Sam and I, is, is have, uh, used, have a kind of discussion uh, back and forth um, on, on, on various issues and then hand it over to anybody who has any, any questions. So um, I thought we, if we could start by, just by saying a few more words uh, about what we've been doing. Um, thanks to Eve uh, for, for, for the introductions. Um, so yeah, I, I am, in part at least, um, a textual editor. Um, and um, it is both uh, uh, a somewhat boring but uh, a completely engrossing thing to be. And uh, I edit, I've, I've brought them along. This is, this is, this is what I've done. Anyway, so I started off um, editing the, the ghost stories of M.R. James um, for Oxford University Press. And what did I do next? I did the, the Gothic Tales of Arthur Conan Doyle for Oxford University Press, an anthology of Victorian horror stories, um, two editions of H.G. Wells, uh, The War of the Worlds and The Island of Dr. Moreau. And most recently, um, I've been the, I am the general editor of the new Oxford Sherlock Holmes um, uh, which is, is nine volumes, um, uh, uh, one volume per book of Holmes short stories or, or, or novel, um, and it's the first scholarly edition of the complete Sherlock Holmes, well, for a generation at any rate. And one of the things that I might talk about um, uh, uh, later on is why we need new editions of literary works. This is, in fact, this is one of the questions I often get asked, um, uh, particularly if you're working on a, uh, a beloved or a, a well-read writer like Conan Doyle, and particularly uh, with a character like Holmes, in whom many readers have and have long had um, a great investment. Uh, people get very attached to the editions that they, they grew up reading with or um, uh, um, uh, that they, they've worked with for years. Uh, and, um, uh, you know, so, so I, I quite often get, you know, well, well, why do we need new editions? There are perfectly good editions out there. What are you doing? You know, as though I'm some kind of usurper in my, with my modern ways, you know? Um, uh, um, um, and as though there might be some sort of dangerous modernity about this, you know. Um, that, 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 that's, that, those are the kinds of anxieties um, that, that we get. But, but I'll, I'll talk a little about this um, uh, later on, about why we need uh, new editions. Um, but yes, yeah, so, so the, the nine volumes of Holmes, um, uh, five of them came out this year uh, for coming out next year, um, and uh, um, mine is The Hound of the Baskervilles, which I certainly want to talk about. Uh, so, so there it is. So that's me, anyway, and here's Sam. In, in terms of the, the, the why we need new editions, it, it's a question that comes up a lot with Ulysses, since it's 
as you probably all know, uh, the first edition was greatly flawed. Every subsequent edition had some issues. There was um, the first American edition from 1934 was the worst. It was accidentally based on a pirated edition, so it's riddled with typos that instead of Buck Mulligan laughed and went over to the parapet, the first American edition is Buck Mulligan laughed and went over the parapet. Uh, <laughs> um, so, and that's, that's just the first page. So, problems. Um, so in 1961, Random House did a new edition, sort of, they, they, it was a reset from the British edition. So it's, it's it, and the, they didn't bill it tremendously as new and corrected, but they were, they knew they had messed up. They wanted to correct it. So they did. The, um, their archives got, they got a lot of hate mail from Joyce scholars at the time, mad at the new edition and its new pagination. One person called it, a, and this is a quote, a literary crime to repaginate Ulysses. Someone else said, I would rather have an edition with the same pages and full of typos than this monstrosity. So that's an example of people being attached to their own editions. It's also at a time when there's a greater amount of textual naivete. There's no work of scholarship lasts for more than a generation, say that whether it's a critical edition, a work of annotation, it will owe, it is in the nature of such things to be superseded. Um, never, um, there are different range of perspectives that I and my fellow annotators had on Ulysses than, say, that Don Gifford and, and Bob Seidman, through the, the, the big, large edition of annotations that had come previously, first published in 74 and revised in 88. There is a significantly different critical disposition. New, um, a whole bunch of, of new information has been found out. In general, the, histor the historicist term in Joyce studies mostly postdates the most recent edition of Gifford and Seidman. So there's a lot of material that they just don't have. So and 20, 30 years from now, someone will supersede this. It, Scholarship never stands still. So I think that would be one way of um, sort of um, um, answering that question. And this is something Corinna would well know in terms of commentaries on Dante. These go back quite literally to the 13th century. And every so often, new ones come about. The, um, is it the 19th century German uh, uh, scholar Karl Witte said, looking on the tradition of Dante commentary to his day, Exegesis is the happy hunting ground of caprice and ignorance. That certain bits of information do get received, but if you look at the the, the continuum of, of of Dante commentaries and the Dartmouth Dante Project, which I think is one of the first digital humanities projects, goes back to I think the 1960s even. Um, so it, it's actually quite convenient. It's quite possible to survey the, the the entire tradition. Someone makes some claim about some canto. It gets repeated for literally hundreds of years until someone points out, maybe not. And so the, the, the slow transformation and evolution of understanding can be traced out. Again, no scholarship stands still. There have been, how many Dante commentaries have there been just in the 21st century? Would you know? No, but I know that Igor is about yeah. to bring up yeah. if it hasn't just come. No, he's, he's, he's still working, but I thought, I thought there might have been at least one before. There's this mammoth project where it's, it's farmed out to a, a group of scholars, our, our um, own Igor Candido. He's just doing two Conti. Exactly. Yeah. It's, 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 
because you also have to process not just the text but the reception of it as well. But these things are always evolving and changing. They are. <laughs> um, and I, I, I'll give an example. In fact, so, so the original Oxford Sherlock Holmes, also in nine volumes, um, came out. It was a generation ago. It, it came out in the in the nineteen nineties, but it had in the early nineties. But it had itself had a long gestation. Uh, so it was the product of, I imagine, two, perhaps three decades of research before it came out. Its general editor was, was, was Owen Dudley Edwards, a superb scholar. Uh, and, and, and he and his, his fellow editors, all men, I should say, and all men of a certain generation um, as well, produced, um, I think, as good an edition as was available to them at the time. Um, that sounds like I'm damning it with faint praise, and I, I don't mean to. Produced a, ser a series of superb editions. But editions which were not only very much of their time, but actually of a time they could have been, because intellectually I think they were the product of probably the 1950s. Um, there are things we know now that we simply did not or could not have known then. Um, one of them, for example, is that when the original editors um, um, uh, produced the Oxford Sherlock Holmes in the 90s, um, the, 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 the whole discipline of post-colonial studies um, barely existed in its modern form, at least, um, and, and, and certainly uh, 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 did not have the kind of profile that it would now within the academy. And I think this would certainly be the case um, uh, uh, for uh, what I might call a group of older male scholars. Older male white scholars. Not that I am myself now an older male white scholar. I grant you that. Um, uh, so one of the things that this means is that um, the first Sherlock Holmes novel, A Study in Scarlet, begins, as many of you will know, um, with Dr. Watson returning to London, returning to England after having been injured um, in, the, in the Battle of Maiwand in the Second Afghan War. So it begins with him in uh, Brit what was then British Imperial India. Um, so it's a novel which takes place within an imperial context. The second Holmes novel, um, The Sign of the Four, or The Sign of Four, depending on which edition <coughs> you choose, um, uh, also begins in 1857 in Agra Fort um, uh, uh, in uh, um, what we might call the, uh, the First War of Indian Independence or the Indian Mutiny, depending on, on what we want to call it. Um, uh, and the, the action of the novel all uh, uh, proceeds from there and um, the actions that took place in the, uh, on the imperial frontier are brought home to London. Uh, this is true of a great number of the Sherlock Holmes stories as well. Uh, things like The Crooked Man or The Speckled Band. Um, it's emphatically true of The Hound of the Baskervilles, um, which begins with um, uh, Sir Charles Baskerville returning to his ancestral home of Baskerville Hall from the colonies from South Africa. And it's a novel that is written in the wake of Conan Doyle's own experiences as a military doctor in a field hospital in Bloemfontein during the Boer War. 
So in other words, Baskervilles is also an imperial novel. It's a, it, it, it's a colonial novel. And um, Arthur Conan Doyle was, um, first of all, a, a highly committed British imperialist, uh, but also a, um, a very conflicted one. Uh, he was, he was of, of Irish uh, Catholic parentage. Um, he was uh, 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 born and uh, educated in, in Scotland. Um, he uh, stood twice, in fact, in general elections as a liberal unionist candidate, but became more open to the possibilities of Irish home rule as his life went on. Um, so in other words, um, one of the things that older editions of Sherlock Holmes barely touch on, if, uh, 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 and certainly not in any systematic or sophisticated way, is the, what is for me the fundamental fact of the British Empire to Sherlock Holmes. Um, and so, we, you know, th that's one example of why um, uh, uh, we need new editions of things to, to, to keep a pace with, um, uh, uh, um, with political, intellectual and historical developments. Um, as Sam rightly says, um, uh, all academic work gets superseded. We, we all become obsolete. I, I, I feel it myself all the time, you know. Um, but the good thing, I think, about um, uh, textual editions um, is that of all the, I think of all the things that I ever do, of all the books I ever write, um, uh, these will probably uh, outlast the others um, because they do stay current or they should stay current for a generation at least, you know, uh, and, 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 and that's okay. And I often find myself in, um, in, in, in conferences or, or looking at the staff lists of universities and the reason I know people often is because I have editions um, or, you know, Oxford World's Classics or Penguin Classics editions, you know, often very kind of far, um, um, things quite far from my own interests, you know, um, volumes of the poetry of Andrew Marvell, for example. Um, uh, the, 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 I think, oh, I, I know you. Um, so so um, there, there's something kind of gratifying about that as well, I think. Um, we wrote down some questions, um, uh, and, and one of the things we were kind of interested in was... Um, whether there was anything that Sam or I learned from the process of annotating. So, Sam, what did you learn <laughs> from annotating? Yeah, quite, quite a bit. Um, very, uh, uh, I, but I'll start by a follow-up with one of the things you were saying, I, that there is a certain aspect of these, these that last. One small aspect of doing things like an annotation or edition is sort of the, the, in terms of fitting with the theme of the week, the unsung work of the humanities, mm -hmm. cultural preservation, that if certain things don't get recorded, they actually might well get forgotten. Um, that I, I was uh, telling Darrell before that, uh, uh, Sherlock Holmes' companion when I was a child was published in the 1970s, and it starts off by saying that we couldn't imagine this book existing in the 1950s. That is, the London of the 1950s was so similar to Victorian London that a kind of guidebook explaining what it was, what was going on would have been superfluous. But by the 1970s, things had changed enough that certain aspects needed to be remembered. Cultural context needed to be preserved and at least some extent to provide a context for reading and understanding. And the same, much the same is true with Joyce, that Joyce's Dublin is daily diminishing. 
Um, parts of it would have still been extant, even when I first moved here 17 years ago, but now are very much on the decline. One of the things, and now sort of moving to the, the question Daryl asked, one of the things I paid a lot of attention to is the use of Hiberno-English, that Ulysses would be Gen it was very some annotating some of the expressions was very difficult because in many cases Ulysses was the oldest written example of a specific turn of phrase. So then trying to define it, elucidating it from some other source was very very difficult. The phrase out of that was um, an annotation that took a long time to do, consulted with many different people to try and get the nuance of it. That sort of the, the bottom line is it's an, not the same as, but analogous to the famous bit of Brooklynese, forget about it, where the meaning can really change depending on context and intonation. <laughs> that out of that can mean a variety of different things depending on specific idiomatic um, specific instance of usage. So then trying to define it, especially when it's used in Ulysses multiple times, and illustrates at least some of the context in which it can have, becomes quite difficult. So it's, um, while Ulysses is very much written in Hiberno-English, the type of Hiberno-English it's written in is itself diminishing. The city that is represented in Ulysses is, um, one can, um, um, is, one can see traces of it, but there are also traces where one can be misled by it as well. That I just recently had to correct, as a reviewer for, for a book, had to correct someone's point that he claimed that the, the Hollow Street Hospital, the thing, the entrance that's on the Marion Square side, that that's where the Oxen of the Sun episode takes place. That point out, no, that was an extension built in 1938. Hollow Street Hospital was on Hollow Street. So these misattributions that one might have, um, again, these are not necessarily vitally important for understanding the novel, but they are certainly bits that contribute to the, the, the color and texture of it. And one of the things I really got into when I was, was annotating was fashion, because it was something I'd never thought about before. But there's a lot of detail invested in characters' clothes, and again, very much historically specific items and elements, and precisely because I'd never paid attention to it before, I realized that there was a whole whole substratum of information there. And as I was aided tremendously by a woman named Helen Saunders, who finished a, a, PA, a dissertation on uh, fashion in Ulysses, and so had done a lot of the, as it were, legwork on this. But there was still a fair amount left um, to do on that. And those were things that I, I, would, I was unnaturally interested in. Uh, also, elements of Catholic ritual as a Jew I found interesting. My wife was saying that my midlife crisis was manifesting as a desire to become Catholic. <laughs> um, but also maybe uh, one question to sort of uh, to turn it back to Daryl. What parts of annotating did you dread? <laughs> did you not want to do? Like for me it was the theosophy. <laughs> like maybe nine out of ten of the, the theosophy footnotes could have just been some theosophy bullshit, and that would have been enough. But then having to go through all the stuff, oh no, this terrestrial plane means this. Oh. Well, um, so thinking specifically of Conan Doyle, um, uh, uh, he was a man, um, I mean, he was a medical doctor, uh, as, as you probably know, uh, by background, by training, uh, uh, educated at Edinburgh Medical School, so the foremost uh, most advanced medical school uh, probably in Europe at the time. Um, but he was also, uh, I mean, he never met a cranky idea that he didn't really love. 
uh, and so um, uh, his, um, uh, his 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 books are full of. I mean, he loved theosophy, for example. Um, uh, so I'm I'm okay with 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 theosophy and with spiritualism um, and with the occult uh, more generally. Um, uh, where I had trouble was uh, again in his um, in his imperialist uh, 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 guys um, was um, military terminology of various kinds. I now know far more about the regiments of the British Empire of, of, of the British Army rather than I than I thought that I would. I I, I know now uh, that had I been um, uh, conscripted as a, as, a, as, a, as a young boy, in, as a teenager, into the army for some imperial war or another, um, I would have been conscripted into the Welsh Regiment and not the South Wales Borderers or the Royal Welsh Fusiliers, uh, because that's the part of Wales uh, uh, that, 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 that I'm from. He invents an Irish Regiment, um, the Royal Mallows, uh, which turns up in a number of his stories, Holmes and non-Holmes stories. Uh, um, uh, and from this comes a, a, a fascination with the terminology of warfare. Uh, generally, I, I, uh, I, I still wince occasionally because I, I once mixed up the Maxim gun with the Gatling gun in print. And I, I, I find myself thinking, oh God, you know, as, as I walk down the street, <laughs> people are looking at me, there he goes. The guy, the guy who can't tell his Maxim gun from his Gatling gun. In America, that would be a problem. <laughs> yes, it would. <laughs> Um, uh, naval terminology, um, all of this uh, is, is an alien world to me. But one thing that I did learn uh, 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 from various writers, that, um, fr from Conan Doyle, but also from M.R. James, is I learned to how to write about, about authors with whom I have absolutely fundamental political disagreements. And I think it's a very good thing. Um, uh, I think forms of alterity are very good, in, uh, um, in, uh, very healthy in our engagements with literature. I, I, I'm uncomfortable with the idea that literary criticism is a form of mirror, that when I look at it, when I read a text, I see a version of myself reflected back. I, I, I know what I'm like. I don't want to read about what I'm like, because I'm me. So I know what I'm like. And, and so I don't want to read things that reflect who I am. I want to read things that, that tell me who I'm not. Um, and so I think that there is a kind of bracing element. Of, so, so Conan Dahl, as I, say, as I said, was, 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 a, uh, uh, was a unionist, was an imperialist. Um, uh, uh, we would not have agreed on very much. Um, um, M.R. James, the ghost story writer with whom I've been living much of my life, um, uh, uh, for, uh, for the past 15 years, uh, he and I would have agreed on absolutely nothing. Um, but that's, I think that's, that's a good thing. Uh, so I, I'm, um, I've become, I hope, I think, uh, 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 more open to the possibility that not everybody sees the world in the way that I see the world. Um, would you annotate Ayn Rand? I once supervised a PhD thesis on Ayn Rand. Um, uh, uh, that might be a bridge too far for me, I think. Yeah. Um, steady on yeah. is, is, is where I would be. She shared a birthday with Joyce, which pains me to no end. <laughs>
Um, one of the things that I, um, uh, one of the questions I found myself asking when I was working on Hound Baskervilles, um, and, and it's something, this is a very different kind of question from the question that you, you, you would be asking or may not ask at all if working on, on, on Ulysses. But, when and where Ulysses is set is an absolutely fundamental question to, to that novel, and we're under no doubt when. Uh, when is The Hound of the Baskervilles set? It's published in 1901 uh, into 1902. Um, Sherlock Holmes has been dead since 1893. He falls off the Reichenbach Falls, arm in arm with Professor Moriarty, to their deaths. Sherlock um, Conan Doyle um, uh, was very keen to kill him off, in fact, and tried to kill him off several times. Uh, and, and he kept returning, because he made so much money out of his return, of course. Um, is is Sherlock Holmes alive or dead in the Hand of the Baskervilles? This is a, a fundamental question. And, I mean, I think the answer is we can't be sure. And that's the whole point of the novel, that it, it maintains, it balances this, 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 this undecidability between the world of the, the supernatural and the spiritual a world in which you know demon hounds arise out of the great Grimpen mire uh, to enact ancestral curses, and the rational, urban, modern, industrial world um, of Sherlock Holmes himself, and these two worlds um, um, are overlaid or intermixed in the novel. Um, but but it's very important as we read it that we can never quite decide what kind of novel that we're reading, and in the same way. We can never quite decide when the novel is set. Now, now of course, um, Sherlockian critics have, have, have tried very hard to pin a date to the novel. Is it set in the late 1880s, 1888 or 1889? Is it, in other words, a posthumous tale um, set uh, before the Reichenbach Falls? If so, when and how would we know? And are these important questions? You know, do, do, do these questions matter? For some readers, they matter very much indeed. Um, and and uh, uh, you know, you, you'll get into trouble if you if you misattribute a date. Um, but you know, there, there's a kind of tension here for me between the fundamental ambiguity of literature, uh, which has and is meant to have, and works because it has multiple meanings, the possibility of multiple interpretations, um, and the occasionally dangerous act of annotating, which is nailing down meanings, saying, no, this means this. Um, and I think it's a, I mean, Sam and I were talking about this earlier on, this is a, a difficult task, I think, for annotators. You know, we don't want to close off or close up texts and meanings. Yeah, you can talk about how the, the, the Baskerville has fu a fundamental dichotomy of 
the, the spiritualist side of Conan Doyle, the supernatural, the eldritch hound, the rational homes coming in, trying to master that. But it's also this, the interpretive act of trying to nail down a date is symptomatic of that very tension. What do you allow? What do you not allow? And sort of one aspect that compounds this in Conan Doyle, I think in very interesting ways, is that Conan Doyle did not care about homes. There, the stories are laced with inconsistencies, which the variety of readerly responses to them are, have been quite interesting, I think are relevant to um, interpretation of Ulysses, which I'll get, uh, get to in a moment if you'll indulge a few little things along the way. There's a thing that um, in the 1920s, I think it was an event called The Great Game, where it was applying Holmesian ratiocination to explain away the apparent inconsistencies in the stories. Inconsistencies in the stories that if you want to take a purely pragmatic, rational thing, Conan Doyle didn't care, didn't have a continuity editor, deal with it. Um, but no, this is how they deal with it too. Oh, no, everything in the text is completely accurate. It is an invitation for us to um, um, figure it out. A famous example is Watson's first name. In most of the stories where his first name is given, it's John. In one of the stories, his wife calls him James. It's his wife, so it's not like someone, so it's someone who should know better. Um, <laughs> now, in another story, we're told that his middle name is H, or middle initial, we're never told what it stands for. So Dorothy <coughs> Sayers proposed that the H stands for Hamish, and that Mary has a nickname for her husband after the Scottish form of his name. Plausible. There have been... <laughs> There have been other explanations have been given. That one was actually used in the, in the Sherlock TV show. And how different is that from an interpretive act in general um, to try and rationalize a kind of inconsistency? One other option would be, well, let the inconsistency stand. Let the ambiguity stand. Um, now, unlike, um, unlike Conan Doyle, Joyce paid a lot of attention to Ulysses. It took seven years to write. He was very, very meticulous, detail-oriented, but he still slipped up. Um, Bloom's measurements are he's five foot nine, he weighs whatever stone he weighs. He has um, a, a chest that measures 29 and a half inches. If you go to a tailor, the tailor would expect that his chest would be about 40 to 42 inches. This is just Joyce was putting together the figures of two different individuals and forgot to correlate it. Um, so that is, that is a blunder. But Joyce also wrote that a man of genius makes no mistakes. His errors are volitionals and are the portals of discovery, which is incredibly shrewd for him because it means that anything that seems like a mistake, such as Bloom's measurements, it's like, ooh, what's going on here? <laughs> Call Dorothy Sayers. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll work this out. Um, and so you have you, you have these textual lapses within it. I think analogous to the problem of dating Baskerville, the Hunter of the Baskervilles, is where Bloom was born. The address is given as 52 Clambrassel Street. Upper or lower? Um, Joyce is normally pretty good at this, and um, they're not, neither is far from each other. There's, uh, lower is a little bit north of South Circular, Upper is a bit uh, south of South Circular. In 1982, Dublin City Council, then the corporation, was going to do a little commemoration thing. Let's put a plaque at the house where Bloom was born. What house is it? 
<laughs> it was so it was an interesting little debate in, in, in the corpo, and they decided to put it on upper because that was still the period house where lower had been torn down as a 1950s style thing. So made sense. They had an unveiling ceremony for the plaque here in the imagination of James Joyce, Leopold Bloom was born. And um, Anthony Burgess tells a story that during the ceremony, this old woman was passing by and taps, what's going on here? Uh, they're putting a plaque for where Leopold Bloom was born. Ah, sure, you've only got the wrong house. <laughs> now, the thing is, Lower Clambrassel Street is in the Jewish district. Upper Clambrassel Street isn't. So the ambiguity is actually probably deliberate I mean, kind of a Schrodinger's Klein-Brassel Street, that the Jewishness of Bloom depends upon or is related to which Klein-Brassel Street he was born and grew up on. So the ambiguity itself is precisely the point. And so again, part of sort of what I saw as the annotating task is bring in facts. In certain cases, don't go for the kill and sort of nail it down, but just sort of explain why certain things might not be resolvable that yes, you do have to sort of seem hyper-learned. Joyce is a controlling author, and in some sense, be all the more controlling. I know why the chest measurement is this, but the height is that. But then it's up to you what to do with it. Well, look, thank you both. For those of you who came to this thinking that uh, annotations were the kind of academic equivalent of train spotting, your eyes will have You're right, <laughs> yes. It's been absolutely fascinating, and thank you both very much for coming in. Talk to us and thanks everyone for joining. <laughs>